You are listening to In the Thick of It, a podcast from the HCM Society, where we interview experts in the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy field to broaden the awareness of new HCM studies and advancements. In this episode, cardiologist Dr. Robin Bride has the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Emery. Dr. Emery is an associate professor of medicine at the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine. He's also the co-director for the Sports Cardiology Center at the Cleveland Clinic, and he has a background in exercise physiology. In this episode, they'll be discussing exercise restrictions, how to develop an exercise prescription, how to safely counsel an athlete or exercise enthusiast who has hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and how to help them safely participate in sports. Let's get in the thick of it. Here's Dr. Emery. Thanks for having me on, Robin. Absolutely. So again, kind of the continuation, um, we're shifting from exercise restriction in this patient population. Now we're moving more towards how can we get our patients with HCM to safely participate in exercise? And I'd like to start this talk off by understanding how these patients show up in your clinic. What is the general perception? Are they coming to you having been told that they need to restrict their participation in sports? Or are our cardiology colleagues now adopting exercise participation? Um, just like to get a feel of that from, from you. So they come with a wide variety of opinions and counseling for good and for bad in a lot of cases. And we have to divide our cases up into sort of that person that wants to be athletic and or compete in sports and those who just want to be active in day-to-day life. And, you know, the classical historical is that everything should be restricted. You know, decades ago, they were afraid to let you walk across the parking lot. And that still persists in a lot of physicians. You know, um, in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, a sports medicine physician was relaying to me that he goes, I thought HCM was a death sentence to exercise with. So that's perception is still out there. So we have to continue to break that perception that exercise is good for people. And then when we talk about patients that come into our clinics and we're talking about exercise, we have to make that distinction of what they mean by exercise and what they want to do, whether that's the low to moderate intensity sort of general exercise that we recommend for anyone, including now HCM patients, or if they want to be very athletic and very competitive and they want to go run 5Ks, 10Ks, marathons, triathlons, do CrossFit. So we have to come to them and understand what they really want to do and what we can help guide them to do safely in either of those realms. I, I think that with your background in particular, I, I know you're a CrossFit enthusiast, but particularly the exercise physiology component that you know so well, I think that that really helps you probably relate to these patients to understand the exercise intensity that they desire to perform and to understand their specific sporting uh, sport of choice. So yeah, I agree. I think that that's incredibly important to really understand what their goals are and and how we can safely help them achieve those goals. Yeah, it certainly helps to create a bond with them um, when I can, you know, walk the walk and talk the talk at the same time. doesn't mean you have to be walk the walk, um, but certainly it it creates a bond with a lot of patients. Right. They, they understand the passion. It it does help (laughs) to, to, to understand that I'm here with you. I'm trying to help you continue to do what you love to do. So 
How much does the obstructive versus non-obstructive nature of each patient's disease come into play in this evaluation? So the first step in the evaluation is like we would do with any HCM patient. We're trying to elicit whether they're obstructive or non-obstructive, and often it takes some provocative maneuvers to do that beyond resting. So before we talk exercise prescription, we have to make sure they're very adequately phenotyped. Do we understand their obstructant and their obstructive physiology, their concomitant valvular disease that they may have, scar burden that they may have? And that's part of a standard evaluation, right? We haven't even gotten to exercise yet because that's going to evaluate, that's going to uh, sort of guide us into therapies. I know, are you symptomatic with obstruction? then we need to work on being symptomatic with that obstruction and how we can improve that obstruction and those symptoms based to that. And then after that sort of standard, you know, subjective evaluation, objective evaluation, risk stratification, then we can talk about exercise prescription being what do you want and what do you intend to do? So, in the setting of, you know, I just want to go walk the dog and go for a brisk walk, that's going to be a lower risk, even if you have obstruction, than if you have obstruction and you want to do CrossFit or you want to do marathons. Um, those are different discussions. Um, so we want to make sure they're very well phenotyped before we start talking about those kinds of um, prescriptions. So I imagine sometimes patients come to you and perhaps they have great images and you can clearly see based on their history, whether they're obstructive or not. Sometimes I imagine too, you're repeating the stress echo to really clearly phenotype their condition. How do you get into and, and where do you really cross the line of performing the cardiopulmonary exercise test? I think you know most of our listeners who are seeing patients with HCM, they're very familiar with the stress echocardiogram and the utility of the stress echo to clearly define the gradient. But at what point are you transitioning over into getting the CPET? And how do you use each of those, the variables from each one of those tests differently? So I'm a little biased because of my background and interest in cardiopulmonary exercise testing. So I tried to do a CPET stress echo. So really combining a CPET with the echo at the same time. So then I get the information all at once without having to double up on the tests. You don't need to do that. And you need the resources to be able to do both. If you're looking predominantly for a very basic exercise prescription, meaning percent of heart rate reserves, you could probably do that with a stress echo without the cardiopulmonary piece. Um, to define those um, percentages of heart rate reserves which is a reasonable starting place for someone who's been very inactive. And then you also get the degree of their obstruction post their peak exercise. If we want more details, meaning someone's really wanting to dive deeper into the physiology and very specific exercise prescription to their level of fitness currently, as well as their maximal capabilities, then we can use those parameters from a cardiopulmonary exercise test, i.e. the um, anaerobic or ventilatory thresholds, the respiratory compensation points, which are these turn points in an exercise prescription that we're trying to estimate on heart rate reserves, but we can be much more specific about it. Whether you need one versus the other pers for a prescription sort of depends upon what you're going to do with that data and how specific you need to be for an individual. 
In other words, if you're just talking low to moderate intensity exercise to keep someone moving and generally healthy, you may not need that very detailed exercise prescription from a CPET. But if you're having a, a, a runner who really wants to dial things in to try to be safe and effective, then a CPET may be an advantageous test to add on to them um, beyond the standard, I'm trying to elicit a gradient. Okay. That's all fantastic information. Um, so it sounds like the, the higher performing athlete, little more utility with the CPET, or actually a lot more utility with the CPET in the higher performing athlete. And then low to moderate intensity exercise, maybe we can just get away with a stress echocardiogram, but still there, there are some variables that are pretty helpful with the cardiopulmonary exercise test. It depends upon what you want out of it and what you plan to do with that information um, from an exercise prescription standpoint, um, from a diagnostic standpoint of what's their true exercise capacity to know whether they're truly symptomatic or asymptomatic, what's their hemodynamic responses, um, do they have concomitant pulmonary disease or other problems um, contributing to their exercise intolerance? A CPET will give you just a wealth of additional information that can help you better uh, characterize those patients. Um, from a exercise prescription standpoint, it really depends upon then what you want to do with that information. And kind of as a side point, I, I want our listeners to know you, you actually are a little creative in the CPET lab. And I, in some of our conversations in the past, you've told me that you can actually do this on the bike or you could do it on the treadmill. And I think for certain athletes, you know, some of our triathletes or cyclists, they're really interested in this information as it pertains to the bike. And then some of our, our big time runners, marathoners, of course, they're going to be limited or they're going to want the information for the treadmill. So, so I think that um, I, I like how you're able to offer both of these aspects in your lab. I think that that's very interesting. Yeah, we have to remember that the numbers are different bike to treadmill. Um, so if you develop an exercise prescription in heart rate training zones based upon a treadmill, they're not going to quite translate to the bike appropriately. And if you're a very high-end athlete, then um, th that, that's going to affect uh, what zones and what training parameters they want. Triathletes may be a little bit similar, at least in terms of the very high max numbers, but maybe not um, the training numbers. So you need to be very specific. Um, when I'm evaluating a patient up front and we're doing a CPET, I really like to do it on a bike. I get additional gas exchange information out of it that can help me. And, you know, with our very talented sonographers, we can do simultaneous echo Doppler while they're still pedaling on the bike. And now I can look for the gradients as we increase those intensities to see where we're seeing the most profound gradients at. Um, what I can't really do on a treadmill, obviously, because you're not getting the gradients till after they get off the treadmill. So discussing the CPET variables a little bit more at care of the athletic heart this year, you had a great presentation on using the anaerobic threshold to help predict catecholamine release and how this is important to understand in patients with HCM. Can you explain that in a little more detail for our listeners to better understand this relationship between anaerobic threshold and the importance of this catecholamine surge after that? Sure. Uh, you know, one of the concerns with regards to anybody with, you know, significant heart disease is it's that 
catecholamine surge of higher intensity exercise that puts them at risk of ventricular arrhythmias and sudden cardiac arrest. And that certainly holds true in our concern for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy as well. This goes beyond any obstruction questions and more about the unstable substrate. So is there a way that we can predict that catecholamine surge? We can't measure readily catecholamines, but it turns out that from studies that have already been done in, and in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients, that that catecholamine surge starts to happen just after your ventilatory threshold one or your anaerobic threshold, depending upon the terminology you like to use. So if we can identify that ventilatory threshold, that first ventilatory threshold by gas exchange data, also called the anaerobic threshold, then we can write an exercise prescription to sort of keep you in that zone, that sort of moderate intensity or zone two, it's affectionately referred to in, in, patient, in the, the five zone model. Um, that can, in theory, keep you below that threshold to keep you safe while still gaining the benefits of the exercise, if, particularly if you have a more unstable threshold. So being able to do a cardiopulmonary exercise test, collect those gas exchange parameters, really know how to identify those numbers and generate an exercise prescription is a potentially good way to gain the benefits of exercise while still keeping you as safe as we can keep you. Because it turns out that that zone right around that anaerobic threshold is where you gain probably the biggest chunk of your aerobic base and your aerobic benefit from exercise. And, and it is that zone where I, I do think most of our patients, they're trying to stay within that zone. We don't have many people that are going out there trying to train in zone five for a long period of time or depending on how many zones you train with. But I, I do just, I love this objective data that we're able to gather from cardiopulmonary exercise testing. I, I think that when done correctly and when analyzed properly, that this objective data can provide a, a wealth of knowledge and help in developing this exercise prescription. So, so again, kind of one of the benefits of what are we getting from a cardiopulmonary exercise trust test compared to what we're getting from our stress echocardiogram? And I, I think it's important for a lot of patients to sort of see we have some objective data and that we're not just sort of picking numbers out of the air, um, that this is tailored specifically for them and where they're at in their fitness journey right now. It helps, I think, them understand that exercise is important. It can be safe. And we're being very specific for them. You know, oftentimes, you know, you and I have probably both heard this. Their patients are given a heart rate number to stay below. And you, you try to figure out where that heart rate number came from. And they're just picking numbers out of the air that may or may not be important to them or specific to them. Obviously, these numbers are going to be different if you're 60 versus you're 20. Those numbers should be different. They shouldn't be the same empiric number. Um, they should be different based upon your current level of fitness and your desired fitness level as well. So I think patients really appreciate those. Now, you don't always need this. Some people can get by with the talk test and the heart rate reserve percentage wise. Um, but some people enjoy this discussion and, and this practice a little bit more. So it, it's how I've developed my practice. It's not the you know, only way it can be done, but it certainly is fun. It's fun for me. And I think it's, it's valuable for my patients. Sure. Agree completely. So shifting gears a little bit more back to stress echo. 
How are you tailoring treatment therapies? So in your obstructive patients, when they're doing the stress echocardiogram and you're assessing gradients with varying degrees of exercise intensity, how are you tailoring the exercise prescription and how do you tailor medical therapy for this specific obstructive population with significantly elevated gradients on the stress echocardiogram? So those are longer discussions uh, with the patient. Um, you know, it depends upon what their overall capacity is. It depends upon at what degree their obstruction is. And by that, I mean, at what exercise intensity, if I'm, for instance, doing a bike and can able to see different degrees of intensity in the level of obstruction versus significant resting or Valsalva um, obstructions. The concern is that if you're spending even long periods of time um, at a level of which you're obstructed, that left ventricular pressure is quite elevated, potentially producing some subendocardial ischemia, putting you at risk, even if though you may not be at a high intensity uh, where your catecholamine surge, that may compound the concern and the risk. Um, so then we're trying to be more aggressive with our medical therapy if we can, whether that's beta blockers or calcium channel blockers, um, to try to knock those gradients down some so that we can improve symptoms and potentially improve risk. Now, a lot of this is theoretical, but I think it's sound theory that we can use to sort of guide our patients with. Um, whether we're talking, you know, more advanced therapies, I think the jury's still out on that because now we're talking a very small subset of population who may have no symptoms but have significant gradients. And that's a little harder to justify things like septal reduction therapies or cardiac myosin inhibitors if they're truly asymptomatic despite those therapies. Although it's certainly worth discussing and, and looking at observational data as we collect more data in this pop population that we now no longer uh, blanket statement restrict. And for the patients with the obstruction, if, if you're seeing a gradient, for example, of 100, and, and they're in that, let's say, zone two, zone three, this is maybe not on therapy. We're going to up titrate, let's say, a beta blocker therapy. Heart rates may come down a little bit. Gradients may come down a little as well. Um, do you see that the, this population and the athletes and the exercise enthusiasts generally tolerate that? They tolerate it. That's for sure. We've mm -hmm. seen people with pretty significant gradients have pretty great exercise capacity. Part of that may be when you, you know, look at the literature of the degree of outflow tract gradients and CPET variables, there's not very good correlation because it's a very dynamic variable. And can be affected by, you know, how much they had to drink before they worked out, before they exercised, or they NPO before your CPET stress echo or your stress echo, and they're not that dehydrated, um, or they're not that volume depleted, not even overtly or dehydrated. Um, those all kind of affect your gradients. So it's part of the counseling process and part of the thought process uh, of how we may strategize with them for a hydration standpoint and a uh, fueling standpoint. And, and that's a, that's a perfect lead in into my, my next question is 
how else do you counsel these patients? So we we get great objective data from both of these tests, the stress echo and the CPET. And then what other things do you counsel these patients on, like hydration and, and exercising in hot weather? We talk about hydration a lot, right? We, we tell our patients, drink plenty of fluids and don't get dehydrated. Unfortunately, a lot of patients don't know what that means, right? So you may have to be more specific and work with your sports nutritionists to help them get a true hydration plan. And if we have to get more specific, we can do that in the sports world, right? We can get sweat tests done with experts to sort of know what their sweat loss is and their sodium loss is and how do we adequately replace that. That may be more impactful in a marathon than it is in a 5K. But we also have to be careful that we don't tell them to drink so much water because we're so worried about them being dehydrated, increasing their gradients, that now they overdo the hydration and they become hyponatremic and they have problems from hyponatremia. So we have to know what we're talking about and who we're talking to and what resources we can get them. Um, I do worry about, you know, the longer distance, the longer runs and about maintaining hydration and maintaining some degree of sodium intake um, and, and maintaining the heats uh, or, or exercising in the heat. Um, exercising in the cold is probably not as big of a deal as long as they're trained for it um, because they, you know, vasoconstrict in their periphery and, and load their ventricle a little bit. Um, to reduce those gradients, but we have to be careful they don't have subendocardial ischemia either. Um, so it's always about being cautious and being careful um, and, and staying away from blanket statements that are too vague for patients, especially too vague for athletes who want specifics, staying away from the vague statements. We oftentimes do the same thing. It's, it's hydration's great, hydration's super important, but so are the electrolytes that go along with it. So making sure that you're replacing those electrolytes, you hold on to that extra water and it, and it stays in your vasculature. So yeah, right. I agree there completely. Any other general considerations for maybe your collegiate level athletes or people participating in team sports with emergency action plans or access to AEDs? Emergency action plans, you, you can't overemphasize those enough, Right. There's all kinds of controversy, even though there's better data about participation with um, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and other genetic diseases, because there's still a lot of consternation and hand-wringing. But one way that we know works is emergency action plans, AEDs, well-rehearsed emergency action plans, AEDs that are functional and not locked up in some place because you're afraid to get them stolen. I think a lot of us now, when we counsel patients, because there's a lot of counseling that goes on in these patients, that an AED ought to be part of their own personal gear. They have the whatever they have in their bag for a ball, a bat, a mitt. They also have their own AED. That people around them that they would be participating with know that there's they have this condition and they know there's an AED available and they know how to use it. It's probably worthwhile making sure coaches know it. This may be an ample opportunity to continue to spread the value of hands-only CPR and AED use in the public. I think these are all important discussions that need to be had, not only with that athlete, but the family, any team they may be participating with. I often encourage athletes who are more um, solo-based athletes, cyclists, to not exercise alone. They should go out with someone 
uh, hopefully they never need that someone, but it's certainly uh, a part of an emergency action plan that can be put into place to be very effective because we know the AEDs work if they're used. Yes, I, I think that the sports cardiology world has certainly done a great job at bringing this into front and uh, center, especially in light of recent uh, highly publicized sudden cardiac death events in professional athletes. And so, you know, our colleague, Eli Freeman, he's, he's been great about this. And he's always said, who's the closest person to the athlete when they go down? It's the other athletes. And that's why we've just really geared up and training other athletes on what they can do because they're usually the first one at the scene. So yes, definitely important, important for the team to be aware of physical condition like HCM that one of their players may have. So we can all be there and and help out uh, as soon as we need to. So um, I think that this has been a a great talk, Dr. Emery. Really appreciate you spending your time talking with us today on this. Uh, Certainly for me, fantastic takeaways from from all of um, our discussions with you have been the the importance of this objective data and and truly I, I agree with you I think that our athletes really like to walk away with this personalized exercise prescription you know it's not just 220 minus age and here's your zones um, it does have to be tailored and it changes over time and so a patient like this who can, a patient with HCM who can develop a relationship with somebody like you for repeat evaluations if, if that's what they desire to, to participate in sports over a long period of time. They can come back. You can reevaluate the subjective data, change the markers, change the zones. But, you know, of course, these, these people need to continue to be evaluated on an annual basis so that we can be sure that nothing has changed within their disease of HCM and that we're able to continue to see them through safely and continue to participate in exercise. Um, Any last remarks from you that you would like our listeners to walk away with? Yeah, thanks for for having me on today. You know, it's it's been a great discussion. I do like using these parameters. Um, As you said, it really helps you engage with that athletic individual who may have HCM. Um, when they're engaged, they're more likely to pay attention to the peripheral stuff that can also help um, reduce their risk rather than not feeling like you as the caregiver is taking them seriously in their athletic endeavor. So they start ignoring all the stuff that we would not want them to ignore. So that engagement process um, with stuff that's very close and personal to them helps to create that bond and I think keep them safe just by engaging them in their own athletic endeavors and their own healthcare. Was Dr. Bride and Dr. Emery. For more information on this study, visit hcmsociety.org slash podcast. This episode was edited and produced by Earfluence. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon on In the Thick of It.